uh, this morning to, to start out as we continue in our series. Uh, many of you, like me, had the, 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 the joy, for most of you, it was a joy of knowing your grandparents. Uh, family, again, can be messy. Maybe for you that wasn't such a great thing for me. Uh, my grandparents, I feel like, were incredible in my mind. At this point in my life, they're like mythical because they just I thought they were so awesome. Uh, I was especially close to my grandpa Pickering uh, on my dad's side. And I, I just admired him. He was kind of a man's man. Just the chemistry between us was very natural. I just, I would follow him everywhere. And I just remember all the lessons that he taught me, everything from what it be, means to be a man to how to start a fire without setting everything else on fire and how to shoot guns and how to hunt. And he was a professional fishing guide. And I loved how fiercely he loved my grandmother and how courageous he was. And there were just so many things that I, I loved and admired about him. There was one painful moment that I experienced with him. Uh, I was around uh, 14 years old, and at that time in my life, I was pretty regularly getting in trouble in school. The principal and I were on a first-name basis. I think I had my own file cabinet. Uh, it was so bad that when the phone would ring at night, back when there were these devices on the wall with a cord hooked to it, the phone would ring, I would get immediately nauseous because I was just convinced it was one of my teacher's once again calling my parents to tell them how I had been disruptive in class or how I was struggling academically and just whatever it was. So it, it was tough. And uh, in this season, uh, my grandparents had actually come out to visit. And when they would come, I would sleep on the couch. I would give them my bed so they could sleep in that. And it was about two o'clock in the morning. And I remember my grandmother coming and, and waking me up. And it startled me at first. And she said, Chad, your grandpa's in the den and he wants to talk to you. And I mean, I just, I was half asleep. I was confused. So I got up, I went in the den. He was sitting there in a chair and he said, go ahead and take a seat. And I sat on the couch in front of him. And then he began to tell me about how my parents had talked to he and my grandma about how I'd been struggling, the trouble that I was getting into, and just how disappointed that they were. And for me, um, the relationship, like that was crushing. I was embarrassed that they knew, and it was crushing that my grandparents would be disappointed in me. And then he, he just talks more about, again, how disappointed he was, but then he, he built up to this. He said, so here's the thing. You either straighten up and behave the way you know you're supposed to, be, to behave, or you can forget you've got a grandfather. And in that moment, I was so crushed, I, and I was just filled with so much fear that, you know, the man, this man that I loved, that suddenly not having him in my life. And in that moment, I just, I didn't know how to respond. And I look back and I, I think, you know, where, where did my grandfather get the idea that this was a good way to approach the situation? An approach that echoed into my life from early adolescence even until now, even as a 53-year-old man, when I really think about that moment, I can't help but feel deep emotions as I recall that moment. How in a moment, my grandfather spoke just a few words to me that impacted me so deeply that it took decades. And the, the fascinating thing is for decades, I defended him because I knew me at 14. And if you know me at 14, you might have threatened me too. But at 14, in my mind, I, for years, I defended him like he was, it was tough love and, you know, there were a lot of things that I did straighten up and all that. But honestly, it took decades and a really great counselor to help me understand truly its impact 
and how it added to these deep-seated insecurities that I already had as a young man and how it added to this invisible thing inside of me that from a young age made it hard for me to let people like, get really close to me. Because if one of the people that I loved the most in my life and they supposedly loved me was willing to forsake me because I didn't act and behave the way that they thought that I should, well, then who can be trusted? Who can be trusted? Who can I trust to let them get to know the real me and not do the same? And especially as a three on the Enneagram, a yellow-red, otter line, whatever temperament model like you are knowledgeable about with my temperament, this was especially impacting more than I knew. Now, the interesting thing is I was fortunate enough to actually know his father, my great-grandfather, who again, for so many reasons, I admired. And from knowing him and from hearing the stories about him, I am not at all shocked that his son, my grandfather, thought that this was the best way to, seem, to approach a seemingly wayward teen. Now, all that said, for the one story, I can give you a thousand stories that caused me to cherish my grandfather and to this day all the ways that he, as well as my other grandparents, did and said things that, did and said things that echoed in my life in a life-giving way through them and through my parents, who they influenced. But if you're under the age of 50, the odds are that you've never really paused to, at this point in your life to ask yourself, what will echo? What will echo from my life into the next generation? Because here's what's real about you. You, like me, were impacted and shaped by parents who were impacted and shaped by their parents, who were impacted and shaped by their parents. And within your family of origin, there are generational patterns handed down to you from people you don't even know their name. There are dynamics in your family of origin that are echoes of multiple previous generations in your family. Everything from a legacy of blessing to a legacy of generational trauma. Good, bad, function, dysfunction, passed down through multiple generations to you. And here's why we're talking about this today, because especially if you are or someday will be a parent, or maybe uh, you'll just someday be an aunt or an uncle, your life is going to echo into the next generation. And generations you won't ever meet will be impacted by you, setting them up either for success or for struggle. Two generations, three at the most. With social media, web, web, maybe four generations. No one's going to even remember your name. And yet your impact will echo into and influence the generations that follow you, just like previous generations influenced you. In other words, you are someone's previous generation. And your decisions, what you're doing now, how you choose to live and to treat others and those closest to you, and all, how you choose to live is impacting the next generation. So what? What will echo? What will echo from your life into the next generation? The, the future family that comes after you, the kids, the grandkids, the nieces, the nephews, the grandchildren, the great nieces and nephews, the great grandchildren. See, they will be who they are in large part based on your influence now. You have a future family you will never meet. And yet you are currently in the process of making your mark on that future family. 
Now, for our purposes today, possibly the best illustration of this comes from a story in the Old Testament that is so remarkable, but the odds are you've never heard the story the way I'm going to tell it to you today. It covers 60 years, and it's more than half, it covers more than half the book of Genesis, and it illustrates the power of generational thinking and thinking of terms of legacy. What am I leaving for the next generation? What am I passing on to the next generation? Now, if you're not a church person, you didn't grow up in church, all this may be new, but I'm going to cover it pretty quickly. But I'm telling you, you should find a Bible. You should download the YouVersion Bible app. You should go to the book of Genesis and skip to the part that I'm going to talk about today and read this for yourself because it is epic and dramatic. And the story begins with the most famous family in the world. And I can say that authentically, because, honestly, because uh, in the world, most people in the world in 2022 have heard of this family. And over 55% of the world's population today traces their religious origins to this family. And it begins with the family of Abraham. And one of his sons' names is Isaac. Isaac had two sons known if you grew up in church as Jacob and Esau, but it's actually Esau and Jacob because they were twins and Esau came out first. And as firstborn in that culture, it meant that you got a double share of the inheritance compared to your brothers or sisters. And it also meant that as a firstborn son, that when your dad died, you became the family judge. You became the primary authority, the rule maker, the power broker for the entire clan. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, and the most famous of the 12 was Joseph. And this is the story that so many of us grew up hearing at one point or another. We've seen, you know, we've seen the movies, whatever. When Joseph was about 17 years old, he had 10 older brothers, and they all hated him. And the reason why is because Joseph was their father's favorite son from his favorite wife. So, like, imagine, like, honey, you're my favorite wife. Honey, you're my second favorite wife, so your kids aren't my favorite because you're not. I mean, you know, people talk about wanting a biblical marriage. You might be careful with that. Uh, One day, Jacob says to Joseph, Joseph, I want you to go check on your brothers because they're always doing stuff that they're not supposed to do. So on this occasion, he goes where they're supposed to be. They're not there. He figures out where they are. They see him coming. They're like, here he comes. Here comes that dreamer. Here comes that rat, that narc. And he's just going to go back to dad and, and say, dad, you know, they're up to it. Again, whatever it is that they would do to get in trouble. So they decided they'd had enough. They decided, let's just kill him. Let's just kill him and be done with it once for all. So Joseph gets there. They're all smiles, but then they grab him. They rip the robe off of him. They throw him in this empty well to take the time to decide what to do with him. And overwhelmed by mercy, they decide, let's don't kill him. Let's just sell him that way and just sell him and tell our parents that he was killed. That way he'll be dead and we'll make a little coin on the side. So they sell him to some slave traders. He gets uh, chained up. He gets taken. And they go back and they break their father's heart. And they say, Father, we found this robe and there's blood on it because they dipped it in blood. It looks like a vicious animal attacked him. So your favorite son from your favorite wife is dead. Now, when you and I read Bible stories, when we read ancient stories, we all tend to kind of romanticize them in our mind because we can't smell them. We can't see them. We can't, we can't even comprehend it. I mean, here's a 17-year-old boy. A 17-year-old boy who is shackled behind camels and he's being dragged across the desert. He has grown up with slaves, so he knows what slave life is like. And he knows that his life as he, as he has known it is over. 
He's not sure if he'll ever make it to Egypt. He has no idea who he's going to be sold to. He has no idea what he's going to end up doing the rest of his life. Somehow he makes it safely to Egypt. He ends up getting sold to Potiphar, who is one of the captains of the guard of Pharaoh. So he's a very powerful man, so he lucked out there. And he goes into Potiphar's house. And from the very beginning, we discover something very interesting about Joseph. That Joseph decided to live his life as if God was with him, even though it appeared that God had abandoned him. At every turn, we find Joseph doing the right thing, and he begins to find favor in the eyes of his master, but he also finds favor in the eyes of his master's wife. And his wife, Potiphar's wife, comes to him and says, hey, come to bed with me. I want you to be my side dude. Joseph says, no, I cannot. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against not my master, but against God. And you have to pause and go, Joseph, what are you talking about? What God? Like the, the God that allowed your brothers to sell you instead of killing you? Like the God that watched it all happen, did nothing to stop them? Yet Joseph decided to do the right thing. Well, Potiphar's wife is not having it, so she claims that this Hebrew boy had tried to rape her. They have no choice but to listen to her. And then this slave is thrown into the dungeon. And when you're a slave thrown into a dungeon, you're not waiting for a court date, and you're not waiting for a court-appointed attorney. You're just waiting forever. And yet Joseph continues to live like a man who God was with, even though it seemed like God had abandoned him. He continued to do right, the right thing, even though the right thing never seemed to work in his favor. And we're told that the Lord was with him, which is good, and showed him kindness, which is good, and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. You go, time out. Okay, if God is with you, you don't have a personal relationship with the prison warden because you're in prison. Being in favor with the warden just means I'm still in prison. And every once in a while, he sends me, he throws a little more bread my way. This is not evidence that God is with me. This isn't evidence that somehow God is kind. And yet Joseph continues to do what anyone who would, would do that believed that God was with him, even though it seemed that God had abandoned him. But why? Well, time goes on. Eventually, Pharaoh gets mad at a couple of the guys and his crew, throws them in the dungeons. Uh, dungeon. They meet Joseph. Joseph, they have both have dreams, and Joseph interprets their dreams. One of the guys is the cupbearer to Pharaoh, and Joseph says, hey, here's what your dream means. It means you're going to be restored to Pharaoh. The guy's like, that is fantastic. And Joseph said, now look, when you're restored, do me a favor. I need help. I'm not supposed to be here. My brothers betrayed me. Potiphar's wife falsely accused me. I shouldn't be here. I've been here for years, and I'm going to die here. The cupbearer's like, of course. If I get out of here, absolutely. And what was predicted does come true. And sure enough, he's restored to Pharaoh's service. And Genesis tells us he forgot all about Joseph. And then two more years, two more years Every day he wakes up saying thing over and over and over again. His only consolation is, the warden likes me. Two years later, Pharaoh has a dream. No one can interpret the dream. But Pharaoh knows this is a very important dream. It needs an interpretation. Suddenly the cupbearer wakes up like, oh, totally forgot something. Uh, pardon me, but you 
oh great one, uh, but if, you know, a couple of years ago we fell out of favor, let's not relive that. Anyway, I ended up in the dungeon while I was there. I met a boy, I had a dream, he predicted what that dream would mean, it happened. He said I'd come back to you and be your, uh, restored to your service, and sure enough, here I am. And oh great Pharaoh, maybe he, maybe he can interpret your dream. And the next thing you know, they're down in the dungeon, going through the roster, calling out, is there a Hebrew boy named Joseph here? He raises his hand. They bring him out, they shower him, they shave him, they cut his hair, they probably pierce his ear and give him a few tattoos. By the time it's over with, he looks like he actually belongs in that culture. And they bring him before, uh, bring him into the palace and into the throne room and in front of this giant throne before the most powerful man in all of the known world. And the Pharaoh says to him, young man, I've heard that the gods are with you and that you, because they were polytheistic, they believed in many gods. And I've heard that you can interpret dreams. And then Joseph says the dumbest thing possible. He says, I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he decides. And everyone in the courtroom would have gasped because who would talk to Pharaoh like this? Because Pharaoh was considered a god. Because Joseph's words communicated that there is one great God, Pharaoh, and you're not it. And you're accountable. And the palace guards likely reach for their swords. Pharaoh stops and says, I need to know the interpretation of this dream. And he tells Joseph the dream. And Joseph says, here's what the dream means. For seven years, there's going to be such a bountiful harvest. You're not going to know what to do with all the grain produce. The following seven years, there's going to be such a famine that it will destroy the economy and wreck the economy of this great nation and the entire surrounding area. So you're going to have seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And then again, Joseph does the unthinkable. He begins to give the most powerful man in the known world, a man seen as a god, and fresh out of prison, he begins to give the Pharaoh advice, unsolicited. He says, so here's what you need to do. You need to find a really, really strong administrator, put him in charge of this project. You need to go throughout the country, build in every single major city silos, and then you need to tax the people 20% of their grain. Take it, put it in the silos, save it for seven years. Then what's going to happen is your people are going to run out of grain. And then you, Pharaoh, are going to be able to sell them back the grain. And by the end of this, it's going to make you like Jeff Bezos times 10 wealthy. And eventually, people in the surrounding areas are going to find out that you're the only guy in town with grain. So you're going to become so wealthy. By the time this is over, it's going to be unbelievable. But... You, Pharaoh, need to find somebody sharp that is just going to wake up every single day thinking about this project because you've only got seven years. And the scribes are going, this is a great idea. Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man in whom the Spirit of God or of the gods is in? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. So you will be in charge of my palace and all the people are to submit to your orders. With, only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. And everybody in the courtroom, again, would have gasped, like, what is happening here? We, we've known this guy like 15 minutes. He's not even from here. And on that day, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt and the second in command of Pharaoh. And he goes to work and he does his job incredibly well. And sure enough, the crops are so bountiful, it's just far more than they could ever eat. They can barely save it all. He goes all around the countryside. He's building these silos, filling them with grain. And on the first day of the eighth year, it all comes to an end. Nobody can grow anything. And the people begin to starve. 
And Joseph begins to distribute the grain to the people of Egypt. Words get, word gets outside of Egypt that there is food in Egypt. And people from all over the region begin to pour into Egypt to begin to buy food. Well, eventually, because it's two years into the famine, Joseph's family runs out of food. They have no choice to go to Egypt. So Israel, Jacob, God had changed his name by this point from Jacob to Israel. Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all of its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But they did not recognize him. Because he's now 39 years old. 22 years have passed since they saw him. And there they are, in a row, bowed down in front of him. And he remembers. He remembers their voices as, they stu- as he stood in the bottom of that cistern. He remembers the terror as a 17-year-old when his 10 brothers held the, held the fate of his life in their hands. Do we sell him? Or do we kill him? He remembers the smiles as they sold him, the clink of the silver as they were paid. He remembers the laughing and the drunkenness and their utter lack for any concern that day when for all practical purposes he was a dead man. And he remembers all the years sitting in a dungeon because of them. Knowing that this was the end because he didn't know the end of the story yet. He had no idea, and there they are, bowed in front of him, and the tables have turned. Their fate, their destiny is now in his hands. But he also remembered something else, a scene from his childhood, and this is the part of the story that never gets connected. We have to rewind and go back many years. Remember, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Esau and Jacob. When Esau and Jacob were teenagers, uh, they were twin brothers, but they were very, very different. Esau was a woodsman. He loved to hunt and fish. Jacob was apparently an extraordinary cook. He just had other gifts and other skills. And one day, Genesis tells us that while they were teenagers, Esau had been out hunting for several days. He comes up with nothing. He comes back starving to death. He walks into the, the, the house. He smells something so good. He walks into the kitchen. There's Jacob stirring a pot of stew. He's like, oh, Jacob, I've got to have some of that stew. Give me your stew or I'm going to die. Okay, teenager drama, right? And, and now, this is a rare moment for a younger brother, because the older brother never needs anything from a younger brother. Okay, a younger brother never has an opportunity to leverage anything when it comes to older brothers, but in this moment, some, somehow the older needs something from the younger. And Jacob does what every younger brother does in this situation. What can I get out of this? Let's start the bidding as high as possible and work our way down. So probably as an afterthought, he stirs the stew. He's like, all right, let's make a trade. I'll trade you a bowl of my stew for your birthright. See, the birthright was what would give him the position to inherit over half of everything from his very, very wealthy father, that he would possibly have two, three, maybe four times the wealth of his older brother, of his, uh, as his brother. And Esau, teenager, frontal lobe, not yet fully developed, very, very hungry. It's all about now. He says, deal. And he trades. He trades 
his birthright for a bowl of stew. Genesis tells us that on that day, he despised his birthright. And he ate the stew, and the stew was gone, and so was the most valuable thing that he possessed as an older brother. And a little time goes by, days, maybe weeks. His father Isaac is very old. He's lost his eyesight. It's time for the children to go before for the, uh, the father, as Isaac, as a blessing, which was a legally binding ceremony. And as part of that ceremony, Isaac would lay his hand on the older son Esau and bestow on him the power of judge and patriarch over the entire clan. And Jacob, with the help of his mother, covers his arms with fur, puts on some of his brother's clothes so that he feels and smells like his brother Esau, and he sneaks in, he lowers his voice, says, I'm Esau, I'm here for the, come for, I've come for the blessing, and his aged, you know, lost his sight father, he's, he's confused, he's like, well, you don't sound like Esau, and Jacob swears that he is, no, I'm Esau, your eldest, his father ends up laying his hands on him, gives him the blessing, which gives him the authority and the power of a firstborn, and then he leaves, and then Esau comes in a little later for the blessing, and his aging, blinded father is confused again, and he's like, I'm sorry, I already gave the blessing. I gave it to the one that came here. I can only give it once. I gave it to the one that came here before you, and Esau is furious with his brother. He's stolen everything that was rightfully his, and there is nothing he can do about it. Genesis tells us that Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. As soon as my father is dead, I am going to kill him. And then I will inherit my blessing and my birthright back. There is no way I am bowing to my younger brother. Well, word gets to Jacob like it's bad. Like you have till your father dies to get out of here or you're going to die. And Jacob runs for his life. He leaves that country. He goes to live with his uncle in another country, and he's away for just a little over 20 years. And his uncle has two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And I'm just telling you, you need to read this story for, for yourself. During this time, Jacob gets tricked into marrying Leah, and then he also marries the younger one who he really loved, Rachel, the younger one, uh, that would become his favorite wife. Leah starts having kids. She has a boy and a boy and a boy and a boy. Rachel can't get pregnant, so there's all this emotion, especially in this culture. And finally, one day, she's like, here, take my maidservant. Take her, and if she has a baby, it'll be my baby, because any child she bears would be owned by the masters. So the next thing you know, and again, you need to read this. Every time he comes home, there's like a different woman waiting for him, and it's just like, hey, we got to have a child, even if it's by proxy. And Jacob's like, well, got to do what a man's got to do. We're like, seriously? By the time it's over, he's got four women and 11 sons. And over the course of about 20 years, he becomes extraordinarily wealthy. His herds are so large he can't even feed them. And the other people finally get to the point, there are too many of you. There are too many of your herds. You've got to go somewhere else. So after 20 years, 20 years, God finally speaks. Then the Lord said to Jacob, go back. Go back to the land of your fathers, which would be Abraham and Isaac, and to your relatives, which would be Esau. And I will be with you, which Jacob had to have thought, you better be with me. Because if my brother is anything like the man that I left 20-some years ago, not only is he going to kill me, 
He's going to kill my sons. He's going to take my wives as his wives. And he's going to see all of this wealth that I'm bringing back. And he's going to think God has finally vindicated me. This is all that he stole from me when we were kids. And now it's mine. And you see, these were stories that his wives and his children knew and understood. So it would have been like, so we're going back to see Uncle Esau? Yes. Isn't that dangerous? Yes. Isn't Uncle Esau the one that Daddy kept telling us about with that story? Yes, same Uncle Esau. So he packs up his family, all of the herds, all of the, all of the slaves, both his wives, all 11 of his children. They begin to make this journey back to the land of their fathers. Esau hears that they're coming, and here's how the story continues. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Now, not 400 like, hey, I brought my wives and kids to meet all the cousins. Like, no, this was a small army. This was 400 men. And Jacob knows what's about to happen, but it's too late, and there's nothing that he can do. So he divides the children among Leah, his first wife, and Rachel, his favorite wife, and the two female servants, the two women that these wives kept throwing at him to keep having children. He put the female servants and their children in the front, Leah, second favorite wife, and her children next, and then this important detail, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. The interesting thing is Joseph is the only of the 11, this name by name. And in the rear doesn't mean miles away. It means just at the end of this wagon train, this camel train, so that everybody can see what is happening. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. So you just have to get this picture. Here's his brother Esau, 400 mounted men, poorly guarded caravan, so much wealth, such an irresistible target for anyone. And here comes Jacob. So Jacob steps out in front of his wives and his children. He begins to make his way across no man's land between him and his brother. And about every few steps, he just falls down and he bows to his brother. He takes a few more steps and he falls down. He bows to his brother over and over. And the family, the children, the wives, the slaves, the servants, they watch because their destiny is in the hands of a man that they do not know and that their master hasn't seen in over 20 years. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and he kissed him and they wept. Then Esau looked up. He saw the women and children. Who are these with you? He asked Jacob. Jacob answered, they're the children that God has graciously given to your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down to Uncle Esau. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down to Uncle Esau. And then last of all, and here it is again, the only name mentioned, came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. And this moment imprinted on Joseph. Joseph experienced it firsthand and then heard all of his life the story about the day that Uncle Esau spared your father's life. And Joseph, he spared your life. And he spared your mother's life. Even though your father deserved anything your uncle Esau chose to do to him. But on that day, there was a reconciliation that no one expected, that no one deserved. And Joseph, that's why you are alive today. And then 30-some years later, there stands Joseph and his own brothers, arrayed before him, faces to the ground, 
the power of life and death in His hands. And He chooses to do for them what He saw His uncle do for Him. He chooses in a moment of extraordinarily conflicting emotions to do what He saw done for His Father. And He extends mercy to His brothers who deserved no mercy. And the story continues. And again, I hope you'll go home and read this for yourself. It's like, I may walk like an Egyptian, talk like an Egyptian, but I'm a Hebrew. In one of the most dramatic moments in history, for sure of the Scriptures, the moment finally comes, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And when the realization hit them that this was in fact Joseph, they were terrified. There's a part of the story that is reminiscent of the reunion years before between Esau and Jacob when Joseph gathers his brothers in his arms and they all weep together. He says, you intended to do harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he restored the relationship and he provided for his extended family and for his brothers who deserved death. And when his father died, they assumed he would finally extract his revenge, but he said, no, this is for your good. This is the thing that God would have me do. And our takeaway is this. What your children and grandchildren, your nieces and nephews, what they see you do will lay the groundwork for what they do in the times of decision and the times of crisis. They're going to forget just about everything that we say. But they will never forget who we are and what we are. They'll never forget what we did when doing the right thing was difficult. When staying was difficult. When just giving up or running away would have been the easier thing to do. When mishandling our money would have been the easier thing to do and just work to accumulate and accumulate for ourselves how it would be the natural thing. But instead they saw us to be generous with what we had. They won't remember what we say, but they will remember who we are and what we do. So dads and grandfathers, what if what you do is the thing that your sons, that your grandsons take their cues from? What if it's you that they look to as their pattern? Dads, what if you are the role model for how they treat your future daughters-in-law? What if you're the model for how they raise your grandchildren? What if you're the model for how they resist or give in to temptation? For how they respond to crisis in life? What if they take their cues from you because the odds are they will? And moms, what if your daughters decide to take their cues from you, how they treat, how they talk to, respond to your future sons-in-laws? What if they take their cues from you and how they raise your future grandchildren? how they view money, their worldview, how you respond to the call of God, the whole, the whole idea and issue of spirituality. What if they take their cues from you? And what if you are now determining what your future family, the next generation does? Because most of us won't be around to see the full implications of our decisions, but rest assured, decisions are being made and will be made that imprint your life on the generations that you're never going to meet. The bottom line is our actions echo into the next generation. 
And it's not just about the next 10 or 15 years. I mean, the question for me as a father, especially at my age, who is ready to be a grandfather, who may eventually be a great-grandfather, that my great-grandchildren will never remember. The question for me is, what's going to echo from my life into the next generation? And what will echo from your life into the next generation? You can make decisions now. You can respond to temptation now. You can handle money now. You can respond to relational crisis now and relational difficulties and tension in such a way that it's going to reverberate through your future family. So if this is true, what should you do? If this is true, what should you do differently? If this is true, then what, what do you need to change? If, if you were to look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, if my son or my daughter were to grow up to be just like me, would I be happy for them? Or would there be some things I would want different that I need to begin that in me? Or if my son or my daughter were to grow up someday and marry somebody just like me, would I be excited about that? Or would be there things I like, oh, I'd like this to be different? What needs to change? What should you do differently? What do we need to change as soon as possible to write the best story as possible for the next generation? And to do all that, we, we need mentors. Just to give you some practical handle, we need mentors. We need people in our lives that can walk alongside us and guide us. Men, we need other men in our lives that are trying to move in this direction. Brothers in arms, ladies, you need other like-minded women in your life to walk alongside you as you work through these things. We need people close to us who can see our blind spots, encourage us, advise us, hold us accountable so that we can break free. So that we can break free and be set free. Some from some potential generational patterns. It was passed to us. Things that we don't want to pass to subsequent generations. And some of you, it may be time to surrender resistance to counseling. To drop the defenses of denial and justify and saying, what good will it do? Nothing will change. Or we finally do get in front of a counselor, but then we hold back on the truth and we only give bits and pieces because we're terrified to be truly honest. Or we're terrified about something that is so buried, so deep, that we don't know what's behind that door, but we know whatever's behind it. I don't want to open it. And then nothing ever changes. But I'm telling you, what's at stake is the next generation. And for many of you, your children, your grandchildren, the generations that follow, your future family, so why would, not we, why would we not lean harder into God? Why would we not lean harder into mentors and friends and to make new mentors and friends and to lean into counselors and to go into whatever length is needed to change and change as soon as possible? I want to invite the, the band up and they're going to sing this song, Build, Build My Life. And, and during the song, you, you can just sit and, and take in the words you can sing along if you want to. You can just process. You can close your eyes and pray. And within the song are these words, and they connect to everything that we talked about this morning. Open my eyes and wonder. And I love that line because if we're honest, there's just so much in this life. Like it just jades us and can blind us to so much. And it can definitely blind us to the goodness of God. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and lead me in your love to those around me. Because so much of who we are and how we view God 
And how we respond to others has been shaped by generations who have come before us. So, a lot for the good, but some for some things that need to change. And we need His help. The song says, I will build my life upon your love. And it's a firm foundation. I'm going to put my trust in you. In you alone. And I will not be shaken. That for all of us, if we're not careful, we lay the foundations of our life on what others have laid for us. And it's always imperfect. But the beauty of becoming and being a Jesus follower and putting Him in charge of our lives and our relationships and our eternities is this. His love is perfect. It's unconditional. It's never failing. It's a perfect foundation. And for every decision and every relationship so that in the end, I and the generations, the generations that follow me, as far as it depends on me, what will echo into their life from my life and in the next generation will be good not be shaken. So let me pray for us. Father, I just lay before you, all of us, all of us in this room, we were raised by imperfect parents, some better than others, some were great, some were so great, some were completely absent, some were just evil. But Father, the thing that we share in common is we want a better future for ourselves and for the next generation. Father, I pray for all of us. We need your help for some of us to really break through some barriers in our hearts and minds that we don't even understand why they're there. To break through these things, to finally be set free from patterns and things. Father, we just desperately don't want to pass on because, again, we want a better future for the next generation. So I pray for all of us that we'll have the clarity as to what that is and the courage to take the next steps to do whatever it takes to address those things and that you would do something that no counselor, no brother, no sister can ever do and that is just through your Holy Spirit to create breakthrough and to break healing to write a new and better story. Father, I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.